Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say. Hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Joe Manis. And our very special guest today is... John Bruner. Uh, a blast from the past, so to speak. Um, <laughs> but possibly a bridge to the future. Uh, you know, some people might be asking, where's Bruner? I have the answer. He's right here in our studio in St. Louis Public Radio. Bruner's back. <laughs> that was a uh, meme that was used by your opponents in 2012 that you turned into a mini viral thing yes. to your advantage. So, Correct. Um, now that I've ruined that joke completely, um, thank you for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. Um, for people who have just started paying attention in to Missouri politics in 2013, just want to for, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you did before you ran the first time, and anything else in between. And, oh, as Joe would say, where you went to high school as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... Uh... You know, you, you do the 22nd of uh, my life uh, in, in a flash. I spent some time as a Marine Corps infantry officer assigned uh, in the Mediterranean, North Atlantic, came back. Where'd you to, grow up? I grew up in uh, Webster Groves. Okay. And uh, was a, uh, went to the same grade school that my dad went to oh, grade no. school. Oh, no. I'm outnumbered. Uh, Bristol. Uh, oh, okay. So in, in Hickson Junior High uh, this is This is terrible. I'm now outnumbered <laughs> by two Webster Groves people. Great community. Yes, it is. Public spirit. Uh, wonderful place to grow up. Couldn't yeah, be Pleasantville better. on July 4th, I swear. It was. And there's another story on how that whole thing started. Uh, my dad activated a small uh, community. The kids pulled their wagons and bicycles, and it turned into be a big Fourth of July celebration in Webster Groves. Yeah, so. it's not one of the biggest, and all the politicians show up on oh, election yes, years. It's exactly a riot. right. Okay, so you, so you, did you go to Webster High, or where'd you go to no, high school? No, I I, uh, I went to the Webster uh, Public Schools, and then in eighth grade moved out to West County, and went to a small school called Whitfield. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, graduated from Whitfield, graduating class of twenty nine, uh, a lot of chance to volunteer for everything. And uh, then went to a small uh, college down in Arkansas called Harding College mm -hmm. and got a uh, uh, bachelor's degree in management. Mm -hmm. From there, I joined the Marine Corps. This is the Vietnam era. Not a lot of people were heading toward that direction. Uh, when I finished my training, they were just pulling the guys off the uh, embassy. And uh, uh, So that would have been 75? Yes, it was. Exactly right. No, let's see. Let me... Yeah, because the embassy was, so yes, the pullout was in 75. That's exactly right. I graduated from college in, in 74 and went through my training. And, in fact, I still have a copy of the uh, Washington Post with the two uh, Marines that were, were the last two that were killed in Vietnam. Um, but uh, did have incredible opportunities in training and leadership from a lot of Vietnam vets who came in and uh, was assigned to the Mediterranean, North Atlantic, East Coast, West Coast, platoon commander, company executive officer, finished up as adjutant, and I kept uh, extending my tour. And my dad said, I need you back home with a family business. It was really struggling. And what is your family business? The family business is a private label personal care company called Vijon, Viola and John, my grandmother and grandfather, 1908. Uh, they started it, my grandfather, $400, eighth grade education, and now it's 108 years uh, and still going stronger than ever. And it's just for full disclosure, and I mentioned this to Mr. Bruner in the elevator, somebody in my Bradley Method birthing class who actually worked at Vijon, and um, it was a good gateway to talk 
about you. So it, every everything leads back to Missouri politics, even uh, the beginning of life. So continue. Well, and your father was also very active, got active in politics about 20, 20 25 years ago. Yes, very, very much so. And in fact, my earliest childhood recollection in Webster Groves is being about a three or four year old on a linoleum floor, putting uh, stuffing envelopes. And uh, and that day, uh, it was Tom Curtis was a congressman, and so I grew up with uh, going door to door, campaign signs, involved in many many campaigns for many years, and it was it was a part of the thing that uh, we did in terms of volunteering our time to help good candidates. Uh, but uh, coming into that family business was a challenge. This is in Wellston. Uh, uh, Ferguson is a wonderful community. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Wellston has. Uh, it does not have the infrastructure uh, compared to uh, Ferguson or some of the other communities there. It, it was such a, it's improved since then, but to get someone to come in for an interview, they would come from University City, drive down the street, move into Wellston, the car would pause, and then they'd speed away without getting out. It's a, it was a tough area, and uh, we wanted to know why the roof was leaking. Well, when people shoot firearms at night, the lead comes down and punches holes. Uh, it was a, a tough group, but we pulled it together. Uh, incredible stories. I got very good at a forklift, uh, loading trucks, driving trucks, pushing a broom. Y you did everything. Uh, I uh, got pretty good as a mechanic. You got good, pretty good at everything in the survival mode. Mm -hmm. And over the years, we put this little group of people together. We solved all the ups and downs that any other family business would have. And today, it is the uh, largest private label personal care company in the country. They ship 2 million bottles to 50,000 retailers every single day. And just, just so our listeners know, one of the key products is? It's Germex. <laughs> yes. now, now, Germex was my fun project. 95% are all private labels. So mm -hmm. if you buy Walgreen personal care products mm -hmm. or CVS or Equate brand shampoo, mouthwash, nail polish mover. Mm -hmm. So we have our one brand is Germex, but we also do the private label hand sanitizers. Understood. Okay, okay. so you do a lot of stuff for Walgreens and others. Now, you have a big factory in uh, St. Charles County, if I recall, because that's where you did your kickoff for your um, Senate race. We have a, a big distribution center there in St. Charles County. We have two manufacturing locations in St. Louis. And in 2006, we combined with our largest competitor down in Smyrna, Tennessee. So uh, we have a lot of manufacturing, a lot of distribution, and uh, shipping, as I said, every day uh, a couple million bottles to uh, retailers across the country. So for people who have been paying attention to Missouri politics before 2013, uh, you're probably best remembered because you ran for the U.S. Senate in 2012. And for, for people who are having a foggy memory or Republicans who want to completely forget that primary, it was you versus Sarah Steelman versus Todd Akin. And Bruner had been the favorite, even up to Election Day. And um, one of the things that I think stood apart from you was, was actually, I think there were two things that stood apart. Number one, you didn't have a voting record, so mainly you were attacked for things that happened with your business and whatnot, or things you said on the stump. And you also self-financed most of your campaign or a great deal of your campaign. Um, but in the end, you ended up losing to Todd Aiken, I think, by about, what, five, six, seven thousand votes or something like that. It yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it was a it was a, an incredible time here, an incredible challenge. And uh, yes, uh, I wasn't a politician, the only non-politician in, in that particular race to bring my business skills, my leadership skills into the U.S. Senate. 
And the polling data, uh, Claire McCaskill was really finished as a senator. And her only hope was to get me out of the Missouri primary. And that's where the fun began. And uh, as you said, Joe, we were leading uh, uh, in that race up till about two or three weeks. And then uh, Claire McCaskill and Harry Reid put about $3 million into this Missouri primary race. They wrote, they had that very famous ad about Todd Aiken is too conservative for Missourians. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of busy people heard the ad and said, well, no, we need a good conservative. And then we also had possibly up to 40,000 crossover voters uh, coming in. And uh, the McCaskill plan was we get Bruner out, uh, she wins. And not only did she win, but uh, also a number of other U.S. Senate races uh, uh, fell apart across the country, and some people attribute that even uh, Romney uh, became on the defense uh, on that after that uh, incident. Now, of course, Romney carried Missouri handily, but McCaskill. Then there was this. There was actually between McCaskill and Romney, it was a huge swing. About twenty points, almost. Yes, about huge. twenty points, and then after after McCaskill, everybody down on the ballot. Virtually every Democrat won. The only Republican left standing statewide was Peter Kinder after this. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you learn from from that whole episode? I mean, John Hancock had been one of your key aides uh, during the campaign. I mean, you guys had been exuding confidence when I saw you at the polls that morning. I'll, n- I'll never forget that. Well, it was, uh, it was very positive. I was uh, concerned with the most recent polling data. Uh, uh, John helped get the campaign started, but... Uh, we brought in a lot of good people from around the country, really, to run the day-to-day campaign. Um, the the big lesson learned is watch your flank. Uh, Claire McCaskill and Harry Reid had a brilliant strategy, and their idea is that we can come in and spend a, a few dollars. Of course, three million compared to a major general election is is a few, right. and and get involved in the Republican primary. Then uh, then we have a straight path to victory, and. Uh, uh, sometimes you depend upon uh, your, your others in the flank to come in and help and support you at the end. Well, you do the bugle call and nobody shows up. And uh, I think uh, at that point, no one really understood how strong that uh, that flanking attack was. But I do have to ask this question because this is going to be going to be a point that some of your detractors in your upcoming possible race are going to say. You spent around eight or nine million dollars in this race. You had pretty high end consultants working for you, and you still lost to the guy who self-destructed by talking about legitimate rape. So, you know, is that going to be an albatross for you when you go into the Republican primary that you couldn't get the job done against somebody who turned out to be such a weak candidate against Claire McCaskill? Well, if in that context, uh, I'd have to agree with you, but you have to realize that you have the Democratic Party, the, the Democratic Senatorial Committee, you had Harry Reid's PAC coming in, you had 40,000 crossover voters. Uh, tactically, uh, they moved in at the last 30 days on a flanking move here that uh, we frankly weren't prepared for because it was a straight path to victory. And so you have to understand that, yes, Claire McCaskill had about, with her 29 winning races, about $30 million of name ID across the state. So I had to build my name ID, which is an investment that anybody who comes in to challenge a, an incumbent has to get that name ID up, and then you have that the battle that you have to face going forward. But, you know, one of the best candidates you can ever have in a race 
is somebody that's lost a race. Yeah, that was actually before yeah, before you exactly. say your next thing. We actually have a clip from Claire McCaskill talking about her only race she ever lost, which was against Matt Blunt, and what she learned from it. And I wanted to use it as kind of a segue to what you're going to do different this time around. I completely underestimated how badly people in Missouri wanted to change teams, not just quarterbacks. And I overestimated uh, how well I could do in the urban areas and didn't spend enough time really getting it to a granular level in terms of campaigning in outstate Missouri. So I learned a lot in that campaign. I learned more in that campaign than any of the campaigns I've run. Now, obviously, two years later, she ran against Jim Talon and won. And so kind of to parlay off of that unusual person for talk to a Republican person, I want to know what you're going to do differently if you ever run for something again based on your 2012 campaign. Well, I agree with her uh, assessment. Uh, You have to have a fully integrated campaign. And to use a, a Marine Corps or military analogy, you can have a, an air war coming in, but you also need the ground troops as well. And you need this uh, synchronization of both the air, the advertising, the TV, uh, the mailings, as well as the field troops in there going to door to door and hitting the precincts and hitting all the counties. And a fully integrated approach is what you need to do to win. And you never should underestimate uh, the last minute, uh, as we would say, the October surprises or this would be an August surprise. Now, one of the uh, other aspects of that contest, though, which could play a role in this uh, gubernatorial race in 2016, had to do with there were key constituencies that were in Aiken's Corner, notably like the homeschoolers and some other uh, very motivated conservative blocks in uh, many of them in rural Missouri, some of them in suburban Missouri. And also he had Mike Huckabee endorse him, who is still very popular in southwest Missouri. Right. So the point is you've got these conservative blocks who, for whatever reason, didn't want you, didn't want Steelman. They went with Aiken. And now at the end, they probably stuck with him, but then everybody else defected. So this time, um, if since you do have an exploratory committee looking at whether or not to run for governor in 2016, and right now there's a whole crowd of other Republicans, some to your right, some maybe philosophically in your camp. How do you distinguish yourself and how do you um, appeal to these groups that, for whatever reason, decided you weren't their choice in 2012? Well, you have to build coalitions. We all understand that. And this is a problem, unfortunately, many in the Republican Party have. They, they steer right before they have to go back to the center. And uh, uh, I ran a general election campaign. I I was running all the way through for – I was really running against Claire McCaskill and well-suited to win that race. But uh, unfortunately, you have an element of the far right and particularly some of the social conservatives uh, who uh, uh, Congressman Aiken understood that he had to get that base. One of the things that I recognize that I failed to implement in the campaign is that we remember in that presidential primary – is that Rick Santorum won every county in Missouri. Yes, he did. And and that was a social conservative vote for a primary. Mm -hmm. You have the social conservatives that were really, and and Peggy Newton wrote a great article back in 2011 in the uh, Wall Street Journal. You have three elements of the Republican Party. As Peggy Newton said, you you had the social conservatives, which are the Rick Santorum. You have the economic conservatives, which were the Romney faction. And then you had the libertarian constitutional Tea Party, the, the Ron Paul group. You need all three elements here. Uh-huh. But don't underestimate the social conservatives in a Republican primary. 
uh, and you have to be able to have all three coalitions uh, through the primary and into the general election. So let's get into what Joe was talking about before. Uh, a few weeks ago, your campaign released the fact that you have uh, uh, formed an exploratory committee to run for governor. Um, this came after uh, former auditor Tom Schweik's suicide, which caused a much chaos and dissension into this contest. Um, since that time, you've actually raised about $350,000. Just in April. In $500,000 or more donations. It's possible and likely that you... You mean 5000 or more. 5000 or yeah. more. It's, it's likely you've probably raised more than that if you got anything less than that. So I just want to ask very simply, what has gotten you interested in running for governor? Well, uh, uh, quickly, a, a little history here. After 2012, uh, far too many candidates peel off. Yes. You know, they've had enough, you know, whatever it is. Uh, my, my dear mother, 91 years old, would always say, you know, you get into politics to save the world and you stay in to get even. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> I, 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 it wasn't a matter of getting even. It was to stay in the fight. And in my business, I've lost uh, accounts and I've won them back. And if you believe you have a good product, you live to, to get in there another day and to fight another day. So I've stayed very active in the Republican Party, continuing to stay involved. And I saw this, uh, for lack of better terms, a, a division in the party between Catherine Hannaway and Tom Schweik and, and, and former senators and active senators taking sides and came into the Lincoln days thinking, what can we do to try to pull Yeah, because you were telling us about this a little before the show. I want you to kind of explain your observations during that Lincoln days. And yeah, because you and I s stood around and talked right. uh, for quite and, a bit and, during and, and Lincoln just, days. And just for a backdrop, the Lincoln days we're talking about is in February. It was right before Tom Schweik's death. Yeah, it, four days, four it five was, days. There before. was a really bitter leadership fight between um, John Hancock and two other people. And... A lot of uh, tension, I think, was there because there were these two announced Republican candidates, Catherine Hannaway and Tom Schweik. So with that backdrop out of the way, tell me kind of what you saw at that at, at that particular event. Well, leading up to this period of time, I, I've maintained uh, very good relationships with all the particular candidates. Uh, unfortunately, far too politicians uh, fail to talk to each other. And I'm always looking for what areas of agreement and how we can pull together because the opposition seems to be unified. Uh, the Republicans have a tendency to get into these bitter fights, and I experienced uh, one personally myself. And so I'm desperately looking to see how we can pull the party together. And going into that annual state uh, convention, I found that things were getting, get, continuing to get worse, not better. And I left a bit discouraged, looking for those points of unity. And unfortunately, during that uh, convention, those ads started to run against Tom Schweik. Um, and uh, that ridiculed him and his personality and his background. Uh, there were issues that went on in that convention that were, I thought, very disruptive. Although and his camp, to be fair, his camp was ridiculing Hannaway as well, just not on the radio. No, that's right. It was pretty contentious, and this was building up to a crescendo uh, going forward here. And uh, I look at these issues and saying, because of our late primaries, how can we have these big battles? And then with less than three months to go, get unified against a unified opposition. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very difficult, and, and I uh, determined that I will continue to do what I can to talk to people, but it seemed like a, a pretty difficult situation in terms of any sense of unity mm -hmm. and pulling people together. <laughs> and yeah. then, obviously, a few days later, Tom Schweik dies, and, you know, 
that seems to have, you know, caused even more dissension after that. Is that? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Although the candidates or the potential candidates, and of course at this point you were a non-candidate, everything was sort of frozen in place while there was this fight over, you know, basically between former Senator uh, Danforth and Hancock and their allies, in effect. Yeah. I mean, that went on for several weeks. Um, the general consensus is that, I mean, Hannaway started campaigning about a month after uh, Schweik's death. Uh, once the police report came out a few weeks ago that sort of uh, folk didn't, they didn't see proof of some of the major conspiracies that had been alleged, did highlight some medication he was on and some other things. That seems to have kind of tamped down um, any blame game, the blame game that was going on. So now there's people like yourself, Eric Greitens, the Navy SEAL slash author, who are have formed exploratory committees and who are looking at it. What prompted you to change your mind from when I saw you at, at Lincoln Days and after things sort of settled down, what prompted you to decide that, hey, maybe I should consider this? My whole motivation is understanding without building coalitions, without building teams, the Marine Corps taught teamwork, and my small business was all about teamwork. I would say in my business, we, were, we considered ourselves ordinary people working together to produce extraordinary results. Everything is working together, and every success that I've ever experienced has been in the team. And then two days after the state convention, uh, Eric decides to declare. And I'm thinking, oh, no, there's more piling on on this, on this chaos. And then the, the horrible tragedy with Tom, and, uh, and then the negative words the charges, uh, all of the bad elements of politics arise even a higher, uh, at a higher level of, of, of negative discourse, back and forth. It, was, it really got to be bad. And now I'm looking at a disaster situation here. And, and the charges are flying back and forth, uh, alleged, or maybe some people felt that there was some validity to these charges. And I truly felt that what we need is a positive direction. We need somebody positively to come in. We can continue to fight our, among ourselves and we all go down or we can bring some leadership back into the party and say there's an opportunity to pull together. And that was my motivation to come in and say let's work together. Yeah. Now, I, now I'm reading – I have your press release up here. There's actually a bolded statement that was for emphasis that says as a candidate I make the following pledge. I will not personally participate, nor will I condone any person employed by my campaign to engage in a campaign of personal destruction. I challenge all candidates for governor to join with me and take the high road. I want to play an ad that you ran against both Aiken and Steelman uh, in the 2012 uh, cycle, and then I will ask my question. They're career politicians running as Republicans, but they're not reliable conservatives. Todd Akin supported a government mandate for health care, just like Obamacare. Sarah Steelman was the only Republican to vote against ending frivolous lawsuits that hurt small business. Her reward? Over half a million dollars in contributions from trial lawyers. Government mandates supporting trial lawyers. Sound familiar? Well, no, wow, that was a blast from the past, first of all. But, you know... In the ad, you then kind of morph it from Steelman and Aiken to Obama and McCaskill. And granted, that's not necessarily like the nastiest or worst ad that I've ever seen. It's not even really even well, close. Well, there were no personal there were no attacks. There were no personal attacks. But the point I'm trying to ask you is, you know, you ran quite a few negative ads against both Aiken and Steelman. They were mainly on policy, but they still were negative in nature. 
how can Republicans kind of trust that you're going to run, you know, a positive, non-personal attack type campaign this time around? There's a big difference between personal attacks and policy attacks. You go to a person's voting record, and if they say one thing and vote a different way, that was the challenge I had. And for the claims to be conservative, to claim, all the claims that politicians tend to, tend to bring up, especially in primaries, and yet their voting records were something quite a bit different. You say that there's not much of a difference between the voting records that these individuals had and the voting records of some of the opposition. So, yes, unlike the ad that was run against uh, Tom Schweik that disparaged his stature, his character, squash him like a bug, yeah. mm-hmm. yeah, these personal attacks are totally uncalled for because, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when you move off of the issues and go into the personal attacks, you've lost the values and the principles that why you got into the race to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so I believe it's absolutely critical to stay on the issues. And I had some big pushbacks and fight with my own campaign and draw the line. And I said, every statement has to be backed up with a fact. I just got to ask in retrospect, do you think that after all that happened, Todd Akin and Barack Obama are the same person? No, uh, <laughs> no. But, you know, when 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 they they both propose the same type of health care and, and, you, and you have the type of, uh, of voting for uh, uh, continue to expand the debt ceiling limits and all of that. We don't have to relitigate yeah, it. I just think you know, it's funny in no, retrospect but, but, given but, what happened. But, but, you know, what, what you have here, and that's, to your point, you start to lose, especially the primary voters. Yeah. You know, no, that's not true. You know, you have an intellectual argument, but, but you lose the emotional arguments. Now, in the governor's race, now there seems to be a different dynamic under play right now is that um, there— um, Mike Parson, uh, a state senator from southwest Missouri, um, just jumped in officially after several weeks of talking about it. Um, he and another guy, Randy Esbury, who's a former state rep from Moberly, okay, those guys are both from rural Missouri. There may be at least two other rural Missouri people, including uh, Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, jump in. Okay, you are among several people from the St. Louis area, you, Greitens, Hanaway. Uh, there have been some who say that really what's going on now is that there is a uh, behind-the-scenes split in GOP ranks that the rural Republicans really don't want somebody from St. Louis running, I mean, as their gubernatorial nominee, that they feel that they should be somebody from um, outstate or from more solid Republican territory, in their view. So how do you, A, define yourself from the other Republicans from the St. Louis area who are in the race, which is Greitens and Hanaway, and then now you've got potentially several from outstate Missouri. How do you define yourself as somebody that um, Republicans, I mean, this is a different kind of race than when you ran for the U.S. Senate. I mean, if you do run in the primary, it'll be a whole different type of targeting. Any thoughts about that? Well, I don't necessarily uh, acquiesce to letting your competition define the parameters of the race, because even in the Senate race, I had the egg community supports, endorsements, everyone from John Deere to the Soybean Association to the farmers and the ranchers. And the reason I had the endorsement is that a small family business and, and the family businesses in, in agriculture and ranching are not dissimilar in terms of the, the regulations and the, and the challenges that you have to be able to survive in an environment that becomes more and more difficult in the regulatory env- environment, tax environments, and all that. So 
I, I related extremely well. I, I mean, I didn't buy a pair of cowboy boots and a hat and, uh, <laughs> and a pair of jeans. You, you wouldn't look there. good in that, by no, the way. No, no, no. But, but you related to the core principles that transcend uh, geography and transcend St. Louis. And, yes, they want a pigeonhole that St. Louis. But, you know, it's one of the, this was one of the biggest surprises that I've learned here that, that for some reason St. Louis was, was some place of a bad place to be. But we got tremendous uh, support from the rural communities and uh, up to St. Joseph, Hannibal, up to Kansas City. Uh, the biggest uh, 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 surprise I had, a number of Democrats who came to me and said, John, I've never voted for a Republican in my life, but I'm voting for you. Mm-hmm. I think freedom and some of these core principles transcend geography. And I, I think the opposition would, would love to think because uh, I— I grew up in Webster Groves. That that's something bad. Uh, I, I know in the products that we make, nobody asked me where that shampoo come from. Or it came from St. Louis, uh, or, or did it come from New Jersey, or what, from other state? Uh, if you have core solid principles that transcend uh, all these other issues that are that are out there, secondary issues. Uh, you can build a great base of support. I want to ask you about two of your potential opponents. One of them is Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. Now, in this press release, I noticed that it was sent by somebody who works for David Barklage, who is a longtime ally of Peter Kinder. Is it your understanding that him and uh, Bar- Peter – is it your understanding that Peter Kinder and David Barklage are no longer a duo and that he's going to support you even if Peter Kinder gets into the race? Well, let me make it clear. Uh, I have not hired anybody on okay. my campaign, you know, uh, none of the consultants. And exploratory, you can learn a lot by watching and observing and, and, uh, and listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, – uh, but I think your point, uh, uh, who's friends with who uh, – and who's working for who? <laughs> I'll have to ask Peter Kinder that because I know, saw when I saw that, and then I heard that Kinder was interested. I was wondering, is this like 15, 20 year relationship over? And no, we'll have to see. But I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that it is. So I'm well, hearing that Barclays is with you. Yeah. No. Well, I, I hope everybody across the state was with John Bruner. And, I understand uh, that. I, the, the more the more friends and more voters, the better. But I'd say, if, let me inject about Peter. I sure. think okay. the world of him, fantastic person. He's done a great job as lieutenant governor, and. Uh, I had the greatest respect for him, and I've met with him a number of uh, times and occasions. And uh, I'll tell you right now, he would make a good governor. Uh, he's been in the state. He's uh, run statewide. He's experienced. I'm not, this is not a, a message to you know, Peter Kinder for governor, but uh, I tell you, I do have great respect for Peter So Kinder. if he gets in the race, it's not going to be a situation where you necessarily get out of the race. No, uh, you know, this is, this is a, a, an incredible, uh, unusual times. Yeah. We don't know. We were joking coming in the studio. We might have 29 yeah. people in the race here. Now, I <laughs> want to ask you about Eric Greitens, though, because in many respects, he's kind of running a very similar archetype to you as a non-elected person that's using his personal and professional credentials to try to, you know, dif- differentiate himself from somebody who's elected. We have a clip, actually, from when he was on St. Louis on the Air about his decision-making process. No, what we're doing right now is we're approaching this the same way I've approached everything in my lifetime with a lot of humility, um, recognizing that there's a lot to learn. And we're sitting down with people and we're visiting farms and businesses and schools and really putting my hands around things to understand issues that are out there um, so that we can figure out how you'd actually lead in such a way that you could take responsibility for delivering real results for people. Now, that's a mouthful right there. But if he ends up getting into the race and you two are both from St. Louis and are kind of have pretty similar, at least basic philosophical messages, is it possible that either you cancel each other out or only one of you ends up being the non-politician candidate? Or 
is there room for two non-politician candidates in a 35-person way primary? <laughs> well, again, I, I go back to the St. Louis issue. Maybe that is important for some people. I've never, I've never looked at that, to where a person grew up or where they're from or where they went to school. But, uh, uh, and, and to use Eric's words, he says he's uh, going around the state to figure things out. He's a nice person, very personable individual, uh, a, a good author, but he's never been in politics before, never been involved in, in helping anyone in the Republican Party, never been engaged in these issues here. He's never been in business. I've had uh, three decades in manufacturing. So I have a lot of experiences that, that in budget, uh, profit and losses, uh, uh, organizing uh, organizations and fine-tuning organizations that I really bring. So in that situation, I think at this point in time, do you want to somebody that's new, untried, untested, versus somebody who has a proven record of experience both in the military and in business and in politics and who's run statewide. Uh, a nice guy. We want more young people to come into the party. Uh, uh, I hope we can generate a lot more young people in the Republican Party. Now, I've heard two things uh, in the last two days. I've heard one that um, that you wanted to raise at least a million dollars from other sources before you announced, and two, that you don't want to rely so much on your own money this time that you don't want to self-fund as much. Uh, tell me what's true and not true about that and kind of how you will approach that compared to last time when you did self-fund much of your candidacy. Well, uh, let's look at the big picture. It's going to take $20 million in this race. Uh, the uh, Virginia race, the Democrats spent $40 million, the Republicans spent $20 million. Unfortunately, politics is getting to be a huge expense, and especially for challengers. Uh, so that is the, the big, big picture you got to look at here. And I also learned here it's about building teams and coalitions. And that's why this exploratory committee is so important, is to truly go across the state and say, here's an idea, here's a plan, I'm willing to pull the party together, I'm willing to bring my experiences in business as well as running statewide. Do you believe in this? And it has been absolutely amazing the, the support that has come in, not just the volunteers and grassroots, people who are turning from other candidates, but the financial donations as well. And so I look at those donations as a valid uh, as a validation in terms that this effort is gaining steam. My last question for you, what's your timeline before you move from exploratory to actually in the race? Well, when we have 20 candidates, or 21, <laughs> it'll time to jump in. That it, joke is uh, never going to get old at no, this point. No, it's, it's not. I, uh, I, I know uh, uh, our Attorney General is just uh, having a great time watching what's going on in the Republican Party. I'm hoping to build the unity and pull people together in a coalition. Uh, I, I know all the other individuals that are in this race are planning to get into the race. They're, they're nice people, but at the end of the day, we have to win the election. Uh, having a big primary and being crippled and unable to, to go forward uh, financially or in coalitions is not going to win. My focus is to present the winning solution, and I believe that you're going to see more people turn to me and support me in terms of numbers, grassroots, and dollars. And just asking again, any, any particular date we should be on the lookout for? Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to put a date. Uh, maybe a, a, a President Obama puts dates in terms of troop withdrawals or attacks and all those <laughs> particular issues. You know, the ground game and politics change daily. You don't know what's going to happen there. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, all I can say, I just got back from Springfield last night. Incredible support. Uh, we had uh, over 30 folks for dinner. Um, and everywhere I go, I get great support and encouragement. So I'm, 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 I'm uh, cautiously optimistic. 
and continue to charge ahead. Very good. And and if you do decide to get in, we'll have to have you back so we can talk policy up the yin-yang, so yes. to speak. Uh, to close us out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I know that you have a very popular Twitter account nowadays. Where can we find you? <laughs> a John Bruner Mo, or uh, I'll put my advertisement in, uh, uh, johnbruner.com. Yeah. And uh, you're ready to click and put in a donation, johnbruder.com. Um, you you can or can't do that. I, I, it's up to the listener, depending yes. on their political allegiance. But very good. Well, we welcome Democrats, independents, Republicans, everybody to get this state back on track, to get a business guy running the state. Same what's happened in Illinois. Same what's going to happen in Massachusetts. Same what's happened in Michigan. We can do it here in Missouri. Very good. Until next week, so, so long. long.